that project manager, usually when they're starting to kind of get voluntold that they're now in charge of operations, their Achilles heel is what used to be their greatest strength as a project manager, which is they were rewarded for being very precise and detail oriented. And that is exactly what holds them back from being effective in operations, because in order to be effective in operations, you have to learn how to abstract away from details and make compromises and think about how things need to scale and how things need to work across different stakeholders in the organization. Is your current success putting a lot of demands on you? If you're good at what you do, and you are, then everyone wants you. But that's no way to scale. If you're delivering spectacular results, you should be commanding higher fees, working with only the best clients. Welcome to the Hands Off CEO Podcast, where world-class agency owners and consultants learn how to fully monetize their expertise and scale profits by doing less. Here's your host, Mandy Ellison. Hello, today we have on our Hands Off CEO podcast, Marcel Petapaw. I say your name right, Marcel? You, you got nailed it, Mandy. Nice job. I'm really happy about that. Um, and as we were just talking about before we started, it is French. Marcel is from Prince Edward Island, for those of you who are interested. And that is the island where Anne of Green Gables was based on. That's right. So in case you were wondering. So uh, Marcel is the CEO and co-founder of Parakeeto, a company dedicated to helping agencies measure and improve their profitability by streamlining their operations and reporting systems. And it's a problem that he discovered while running his own agency. One of the things that I wanted to have Marcel come on here for is to talk about how to measure profitability and how to measure profitability a better way than it is being done. And I'm really excited about this. Marcel and I have known each other, what was it, like six, eight years, something like that? Yeah, about yeah, five, six years for sure. Yeah. So I have been watching the work as it's been developing at Parakeeto. I really respect the work that they're doing there. And um, I'm really excited to talk about profitability as it's specifically connected to value-based pricing. And that's it's a different type of uh, profitability measurement. And that's just something that I really wanted to have Marcel come and talk about it here. So welcome to the show, Marcel. Nice to have you. Thank you, Mandy. It's great to be here and uh, an honor to be on the show. Yeah. So I want to first open it up with, I know you had a, a, an agency before you ran into this problem. Tell me about how that, that came about. Yeah. So, you know, like most entrepreneurs, I've got a few companies under my belt and very few of the first ones actually made any money or scaled. But one of those adventures was a company called Real Tours Media. And so what we were doing long before the technology existed to do this with your cell phone, we would turn houses into 3D models so that you could do virtual tours of them on the internet. Uh, this was back in maybe 2015 or so. And so um, that was a small firm. And at that time, I was trying to figure out if I could scale the business because I did not like doing that work. I didn't like going into the house, taking the pictures, creating the models. It wasn't really my thing. I was more interested in running the business. And very early on, I started looking into margins and unit economics and utilization and doing a lot of research on these things and discovered just how, first of all, opaque a lot of the information about this was back at that time. Uh, it was very hard to get a clear answer to how to correctly measure these things. I was getting a lot of inconsistent information. And ultimately, what I figured out was that business was not going to scale at that time in my market because it was a buyer's market. Houses were selling for very little money. They were sitting for a very long time. 
real estate agents were not willing to invest a whole lot of money in their listings. And it took like 30 hours to do one of these jobs. So if I was getting paid 300 bucks to work 30 hours, it's going to be very hard for me to find local labor to do that and still have enough margin. So I ended up walking away from that business, but I had become familiar with this problem. Fast forward a few years later, I got more interested in software and I got a call from a friend of mine that runs multi-million dollar software development agency out of Boise. And he just said, we spend a day or two a week in spreadsheets, bringing data together to answer these questions that we need answers to to run the business. And there's just got to be a better way to do this. And I knew right away, yep, I felt that pain. We started interviewing other agency owners. They were feeling that pain. And uh, we decided, let's look into this and see if there's a better way to solve this problem. And that was almost five years ago now. And I just haven't looked back. That's how we started Parakeeto. Great. Well, um, well, tell me about how that's playing out now. What are the kind of results that you're seeing working with agency clients now on their profitability? Yeah. So I, we get to see a lot of agencies now. Every month we're in the financials, in the time tracking, in the operations data for a handful of agencies. And we're building our, our roster of clients that we work with on an ongoing basis. And some of my favorite success stories are the firm that grew 60% year over year, tripled their profitability, and almost completely eliminated the overtime and evening and weekend work that their team was doing. So all these three things that seem inconsistent with one another, they achieved within 12 months of working with on an ongoing basis. We had another client that we found a way for them to grow 40% year over year without adding any headcount to their team just by replacing revenue in their business that was inefficient because they did only retainer work. So they had a whole bunch of old clients in there, and I'm sure people listening have had this experience that they've been around for a long time, but over time their profitability had diminished but they just weren't measuring that. So they couldn't see that there was actually a whole bunch of clients in their business that were causing indigestion. And over time, they were able to replace those clients with higher profit clients, grow their revenue, grow their profit, and not change the size of their team. And these are founders that had doubled the size of the business and actually made less money than they did when the business was half the size. I'm sure we all heard that story. So those are the kinds of things that we're helping agency owners get to. And we're doing that by giving them, empowering them with data so they can actually see exactly what's going on in the business and figure out what to do about it. So what is like that sweet spot for an agency where you can really maximize profit? Is there a sweet spot? I wouldn't, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that there is like one particular sweet spot. What I will say is that there are typically these kind of trenches that agencies have to go through where they're going to experience a reduction in profitability a lot of the time. And those are generally going to correlate with when they have to build layers of management into the business. So usually that first layer is going to come when each founder is, you know, looking at six to eight direct reports. They're usually having to start to install their first layer at that point. Then you're seeing another one installed in that 25 to 30 range. C-suite usually starts to come together, 50, 60 kind of people. And so those are moments when you're usually having to bring on expensive talent that's not going to be very billable, and then scale the delivery team around them to kind of bring back the business to baseline. But these are kind of these waves that you have to deal with as you scale the company and, and hit those different growth ceilings. And I'm sure you see the same kind of correlation in your clients that they start to get stuck at these very predictable revenue levels because of the transition that needs to happen in terms of the leadership of that business, you know, basically invent a new job for themselves and replace the old job that they were doing. And then in the short term, kind of bear the cost of doing that and grow into it uh, over the next few years or months. We've seen the exact same thing too, Marcel, of what you're, is what you're talking about uh, when they need to put in layers of management and then need to backfill their job 
and uh, then train it out. And there's all these systems that need to be put in place at the same time. But at the same time, mm-hmm. how do you put those systems in place and those people in place when you're kind of fuzzy about what you're actually selling to? Because it can be all over the place. Because there's so one of the things that we see is it's it's a very nuanced problem because it's it's a whole system that's all interconnected and impacting each other. Is that what you're seeing too? Absolutely. And you have two kind of separate problems, both of which are really hard. You have the tactical problem of this web of process, of procedures, of standardization, the feedback loops, uh, the meeting cadences, like all of the tactical execution that needs to happen to successfully do that transition. And then the emotional psychological side of being a founder and having to let go of things and grow as a leader. And both of those things are non-trivial at every stage that it needs to happen. Um, And one of the things that we see, one of those processes that needs to get installed among many others is generally better reporting and visibility so that this group of managers that's coming in actually has feedback and actually has a way to stay accountable to results and for the managers that are transitioning up a level to have enough visibility to not feel the need to micromanage and be in the weeds day to day and actually be able to comfortably step back and have the right level of visibility into what's going on. So clients come to find us a lot of times when they're hitting those ceilings and these problems come up because they have to get dealt with in those moments. Well, yeah, it's like there, there's all these different pieces that are going into place and um, I want to talk more about the reporting and the visibility because, you know, one of the things that we were talking about before we started the episode is just about how most advice is so overkill. <laughs> it's so overkill and it doesn't actually give the agency the information that they need. It just gives a lot of data that actually, what are you even supposed to do with it all? Yeah. So what is that? What is the right amount of reporting and visibility? And um, maybe we should even just talk about how, how wrong that approach is, first of all, and let's kind of dig into what a better approach is. Yeah, um, that's a great question. I'm going to zoom out a little bit and talk about the life cycle that I see a lot of agencies go through with this, which is generally, and I'm going to make a bunch of generalizations. Generally, the founder of an agency is a subject matter expert in a creative or digital marketing or strategic discipline. And they accidentally grow a business because they're so good at what they do. They attract other people that are good at what they do. They create value in the marketplace. And next thing you know, they have a business. And so they're not really familiar with these things. So usually what I see is when they reach the kind of breaking point, they take their senior most project manager or whoever looks the most like a project manager in their organization at the time, and they go, you're responsible for this now. And that project manager, usually when they're starting to kind of get voluntold that they're now in charge of operations, their Achilles heel is what used to be their greatest strength as a project manager, which is they were rewarded for being very precise and detail oriented. And that is exactly what holds them back from being effective in operations, because in order to be effective in operations, you have to learn how to abstract away from details and make compromises and think about how things need to scale and how things need to work across different stakeholders in the organization. And what I found is that the most common mistake is agencies start trying to track everything. And in doing so, they end up tracking nothing because they set themselves up for failure. Their systems are too complex. And many of the ways in which that happens is also by trying to pursue this in a traditional way 
which is going to the accounting team and the finance department and saying, it's your responsibility to help us solve this problem, which I think is also a big mistake because it's not really within their scope of work. And trying to pursue profitability insight purely through financials is a really expensive and cumbersome endeavor. And there's way easier ways to do that. And that's part of what we're trying to educate people on and create free content around so that that information becomes more accessible. It's what I wish I had available to me when I started my first firm. Okay, let's unpack this a little bit. So first of all, what you're saying like is dead on exactly what we see uh, across our clients as well. You know, you have this project manager upgraded to an operations manager, um, and then you're you're also looking at like all the detail. There's just way too much detail that's tracked or moved over to finance department. And you get the finance department involved. Whoa, like they can totally miss the forest through the trees and just not even get it. Then you add that on top of it, that some of these accountants are really more like your tax accountants and they're not really even, they don't even know what they're doing as far as bringing in good measurable data that actually tells you anything of substance. There's just so many financial experts that can be involved in your company. But I want to ask you though, what do you think about the decision of moving the project manager into an operations manager position? Obviously it has worked, it's been done, but it's a challenge. And uh, I think without giving them training and support and mentorship and you know really allowing them to learn how to transition into that role it's going to be a difficult transition because like i said there there certainly are aspects of project management that are going to help you having the context of how things actually get done are going to help you but you got to learn how to abstract and make compromises and differentiate between precision and accuracy which are often in conflict with one another they're conflated as being the same thing not only are they different they're often in conflict with one another and those are the things that i've really seen project managers get held back by as they try to ladder up the organization i love that you're sharing this and i'm definitely going to be putting this podcast into our program for our operators because we actually will be we're training up operators everything from project managers that are moving up into an operation leader's role, sometimes account managers, um, all the way up to COOs who maybe they've been successful in another company, but how do you actually take that into an agency, which is a whole different animal? Yeah. And um, getting clear on what those key responsibilities are is something that's really important for training. So I completely agree with you. And that's actually one of the things that we, over the past about three years or so, we've really built up a lot of training and development for our operators for this very reason. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing it. I do one-on-ones with our project manager all the time. And these are the things that I'm coaching him on. It's like he had, there's so much value because we'll be having a conversation about changing or evolving how we do something and add more value to the client. And he tends to take this position and be very concerned about, well, that's going to make things more efficient or it's going to change the process, you know, which is great. We need somebody thinking about all those things. But what I explained to him the other day was you want to move up and become an operator at a higher level, you need to be able to engage with a visionary and be involved in that conversation and be open to it and contribute to it before you start working backwards to all the risks and contingencies and changes. Like you, you need to be able to do that too. That's your job as an operator. But if you can't even absorb the vision and, and engage in that conversation, that will be your Achilles heel. And so that's part of his development is learning how to Go in, abstract, be open, and change the mindset, the frame that he has inside of a conversation so that he can then leverage all the skills that he really does have about thinking through all the details and how that's going to actually come to term in reality. I think that's a really good distinction too when you're actually evaluating whether a project manager can make that leap. Can they actually see the big picture? Can they connect the dots between the big picture and the vision and taking the vision and being able to execute that? 
into the minute details or are they just going to stay in the details forever? And that's where they, they feel comfortable playing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. Like you need people like that in the company to run, right? Operators versus builders, right? And are they capable of going into something that is obscure and making compromises and getting an initial solution in place, iterating towards better stuff? Or to your point, are they going to need to have their hand held and they're going to need to be given a lot of context before they can take any action? That's, uh, that's going to be a sign that it will be difficult for them to move up uh, to a more strategic position in operations. Mm, I love that. Thanks for sharing. So if, they, so if they need a lot of context before they can make a decision, then it's an indication that um, they may not be ready for the next level leadership role. Yeah, that, that would be a sign that I'm looking for because that's so much of operations, right? Is you're, you're basically the context you're being given is here's a problem or here's a direction that we want to go or here's a you know often fleeting and very vague vision that you got from one of those characters in the company that they're more on that side of the spectrum. And you have to then work backwards into, okay, how do we take action on this and be the one that drives that forward? And so the more you're able to simultaneously deal with uncertainty but have certainty in your ability to then turn that into reality. That that is how you scale as an operator, and you need both sides of that skill set, in my opinion. Ooh, there's a mic drop right there. Um, <laughs> so I want to go back to what you were talking about with you know the life cycle. I want to let you get back into that and share. You know what what is the next best step for this? Yeah. What should we be looking for instead? Uh, in terms of data management in the business. Right. Cause we were, we were talking about how there was too much data and they, they are tracking everything. And in a sense, not tracking anything because it's just, it's way too much detail. And I remember us talking specifically about how there's some key pieces in the operations that can be tracked that can eliminate the need for really complex accounting that most of these smaller agencies just don't have the bandwidth and budget to do. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with, um, first the, the case for why Financial data is probably not the right path for most firms listening today to get answers like, you know, what kind of projects, services, clients are we making more or less money on? Who do we need to hire and when? Is our team properly utilized? Are our estimates accurate? Like those are all the questions that if you have the right data and you're getting answers and feedback to those, you can pinpoint exactly why you are or aren't hitting your profitability targets. And to the degree that that is going to be precise, really get a clear understanding of exactly where to focus as an operating team. And so if you think about how you would solve that problem using financial data, the problem with finances, to your point, is that there is a conflict inherently in there. There's a lot of things you got to do to reduce your taxes that are going to make it less clear how the business is actually performing. You have to obfuscate reality a little bit. Thank you for pointing that out because every time I've talked to an accountant about this, they kind of skirt over that issue. No, it's it's a real conflict. That, like this is a well-known thing, especially in software in SaaS, right? They say you got to have three sets of books. You got to have the books for taxes, the books for the financial reporting to the market, and then the books for you to actually know what's going what the hell's going on in the business. Like and so there's a conflict there and those things trying to coexist in a single accounting system is difficult. So usually you're going to end up with a separate reporting system. So already you've got complexity there. Then you have the whole issue of accruals, which for a service business, most people are doing accruals based on the invoice schedule. But especially if you do a lot of project-based work with large deposits up front, that invoice schedule is not at all aligned to 
when you're earning revenue and most often not even close to aligned to when you're earning costs. So that accrual schedule is not even accurate, which means if you're trying to get you know, monthly insight even to project performance, it's not going to be helpful because you're going to have these massive peaks and valley and revenue recognition. It's not going to match up to costs. And trying to close the gap with that inside of something like QuickBooks is extremely expensive because now you got to do journal entries for all of that. I'm not an accountant, by the way. This is just experience having to like work with accountants to try and close these gaps. And so that's an increase in complexity. It's also a massive decrease in visibility because you're not going to be able to trace transactions in a straightforward way. There's just going to be a mess of journal entries all over QuickBooks. And then on top of that, if you think about project accounting, well, now we have to start applying that level of scrutiny to every, you know, you got to do payroll allocations, all the expenses need to be tracked to specific projects, all the invoices need to be tracked to specific projects, and the reconciliation has now gotten much more complicated. So the problem with financials is already that usually you're getting them three weeks after the month is done and you're looking backwards at 45-day-old data. That's probably going to get worse. If you move to project-based accounting, because the scope has just increased, it's at least going to get more expensive. But if you're also trying to get more timely, that's going to be even more expensive. So that's the way that everybody thinks about measuring profitability. And I guess what I'm saying is there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. And especially if you're a large firm, you have the resources. Sure, go ahead and do that. But there's a way easier way to get that insight. And it's really about saying, okay, the job of our finances primarily is to keep us out of jail, (laughs) reduce our tax burden you know, and abide by all the regulations that need to be in place. And it needs to be very precise, which is, again, an advantage and a huge disadvantage of finance data. So let's have it do a good job of that and be a reasonably accurate source of truth about what's happened in the past. It's very good at doing that job. But if we want to start answering questions about where are we going, what is our plan, and where are we off of our assumptions, operations data is a much simpler answer, and it can allow you to empower your team with data without having to open the books and do full open book management. It could be a lot simpler. And there's really only three pieces of information that you need that every agency is creating in order to measure these things. You need to have some basic information about projects. What's the project? How much do you get paid? When is it happening? And how much time do you expect it to take you? That's it. You need to have some basic information about people. Who works for you? How much do they get paid? How much time do they spend working and how much of it do you expect to be spent on client stuff? Again, just four simple things. And then time tracking data. How much time did we spend and what do we spend it on? If you have those three pieces of information on the cadence at which those things can be updated, you can measure almost anything in the business. You can know exactly what projects, clients, services are performing better or worse than others. You can know if your utilization is good or bad. You can start to forecast your capacity versus planned work and understand ideally months ahead of time where you might need to start thinking about making staffing changes. Those three pieces of information can unlock all of that insight for you if you know how to use it properly. So that's the case that I'm here to make is that we need to start opening up to operations data and we can apply these frameworks across all different billing models, whether it's time materials, value-based, flat rate, retainers, project-based. We've applied it to all of those things. It works, it normalizes, all of that stuff. So that's the the kind of message, the gospel that I'm here to spread, if you will. Got it. So the three pieces of information are the projects, you know, what what are they, the amount, when you're getting paid, um, so, so the billing cycle on that, I'm assuming, for all the projects. It's more, uh, you can do the billing cycle, but it's actually more about the timeline of that project. If we're thinking about when we're earning that, if we're looking at it on more of an accrual basis, yeah, and then how much time you expect it to take. So those are the four inputs for projects. Yeah. 
And then for people, you're looking at how many people are on the project, how much are they making, and how much you expect, how much time expect you expect it to take the projects. Is that right? When we're thinking about people data, we're thinking about both of these data sets at the agency wide level. So projects is like as a company, what are all the projects we have going on? When are they occurring? How much are we getting paid and what what amount of time do we expect it to take? For people, it's like who's on the team? When did they get hired? When do they get fired or when do they quit? What are they getting paid? And how much time do they have available to us? Do we hire them for 40 hours a week? Are they part-time? And then how much of that capacity do we expect to be spent doing work for clients? Right. So if you're a designer at a firm, you might work 40 hours a week, but we expect about 32 of those to be, you know, on client work. That allows you, those two data sets allow you to, the people data set allows you to say, how much time do we have available in a week, in a month, in a quarter? And you can start to slice that down and say how much of that is design time, how much of that is project management time. So with those four pieces of information about people, you can start to model your capacity for any anything that you want to look at. And then with that same set of information for projects, you can start to layer that on top. Okay, we have this much design time. How much design time are we going to need that month across all the different projects that we have? And is there a discrepancy there? Do we have way more time planned than what we have available on the team? So we probably need to think about hiring or moving timelines around, or are we way under target? In which case, that's probably an issue because it means we're going to be paying for a lot of capacity that goes unutilized and it's going to hurt our profitability. So those are kind of the two data sets for people and projects. And that really unlocks forecasting. That's all you need to start forecasting into the future as long as those things are properly structured. This is great. Now, what is like a good next step if you are looking at getting this data sets into a proper forecasting? Yeah, great question. The biggest issue that I see here is people struggle to structure their project estimates in terms of time and their capacity model in a way that is congruent. So an example of this would be when I think about my team, I'm forecasting my capacity and I'm thinking about it in terms of roles. So like how much design time do we have? How much project management time do we have? How much development time do we have? But then when I estimate a project, and I'm scoping a project, I'm thinking about like 50 different tasks and they don't map back to the way I think about capacity. So now all of a sudden I've made it really hard for myself to look into the future and say, well, how much design time do I need available? Because it's not in that format. It's, it's spread across all these different tasks and there's a lot of work to be done to map those tasks back to roles. So the first step is to really simplify and try to boil everything down to five or six core categories and make them the same for your capacity model and how you estimate project work. And you can still have those 50 tasks, but roll them all up into categories. So it, it can all come back to that same format. And that makes it much, much simpler for you to start to compare those things together. So every time you hire somebody, you make sure that you assign their capacity to one of those buckets. And every time that you estimate a project, you make sure that any of the estimates for the time it's going to take to get that done roll up to those same exact buckets. And that's that one step can simplify things so much. And it's also the first step for implementing time tracking data properly. Because of course, that's the next place that we see that same issue happen is we then we're like, okay, great, we've done that step. We're forecasting. Awesome. But now our time tracking data is coming in and we've got 300 discrete tasks <laughs> that that's logged against and none of those map back. So it's the same issue. Can we then apply those same standard categories to our time tracking data. So 
no matter what is being done, it's ending up in one of those same buckets. And now we have some consistency and simplicity to the data set and it's standardized and we can start to really lower the cost and friction of starting to ask these questions of what's the plan, what did it actually take, et cetera. That's great. So then um, I know know a question that many people listening to this will be asking themselves is, well, you mentioned about one role, uh, one person hiring, and they may do, you know, three or four different buckets. So then that's just a matter of time tracking that based on the different role that they're taking at the time, the different hat they're wearing. Is that correct? Right. So it's a great question. It's a great question. For most people, this is where we get into this conversation about precision versus accuracy. So the project manager in the room would say, well, yeah, like Mandy is a designer on the team, but sometimes she does strategy work and sometimes she'll go and help the development team out because she knows how to do Python. Um, So it's not like 100% of Mandy's capacity is in design. Sometimes she does a bunch of other stuff. But the important question is, okay, well, how material is that difference? And most of the time when we double click on it, and the, the important criteria here is in an ideal scenario. So imagine you had unlimited work for the team to do, and Mandy was focused on the thing that she's best at. What percentage of her time would be dedicated to those other things? And usually the answer is zero or very little. So if we know that 80% of your time really should be spent on design, then as a first version of this to keep things simple, then just allocate all of that person's capacity to design. It's not quite as precise. Yes, there's a 20% variance there, but it's directionally accurate. And you know what's more accurate than not getting any insight? Is getting some insight that's 80% accurate, right? Because the, the cost of not doing this is you have none of this visibility and then that's not helpful at all. So I would encourage people to just accept sure. some compromise on precision to get started with this. But then once you get your feet under you, you can introduce this concept of role categories and task categories as separate ideas, but then you need to build a map between them. So let's say fast forward six months, we're getting more sophisticated and then we decide, okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to take Mandy's capacity and we're going to split it up across the different categories. 10% is going to go to, uh, you know, project management, 60% is going to go to design, uh, 20% is going to go to strategy. So we can build that model. We just need a system on the back end. And so we have like software engineers that help us do this. You might not have software engineers on your team. So it's not actually that easy to do. But now we can take that person's capacity and convert it into those categories. And similarly, when we estimate a project across those categories, we can convert them back and compare them to the capacity model. But it's a significant increase in complexity. And then those allocations need to get managed and you know updated over time. And this is one of the things that we spend so much time on with clients is you think that something like making it a little bit more precise is non-trivial, but a lot of times it is significantly more complicated and significantly more work to maintain over time. And so, so much of what we do is trying to help a client find that point of diminishing returns where things will be precise enough to be accurate and helpful and allow them to get started without becoming so complex that they don't end up being able to maintain it and then they don't get any value from it at all. So what do you recommend as far as tools for tracking this? Or do you guys create your own? I mean, in terms of time tracking, that's not something that we built or do. The best, people don't like it when I give them this answer because they want me to tell them what tool to use. But the reality is the best time tracking tool is the one your team actually uses. And 
this is another place where people get caught up in precision versus accuracy. I would rather you have 90% compliance on your team and it's like 70% or 60% accurate than have, you know, uh, 60% compliance with like 90% precision. It's, it's like you've got 50 different categories and tags that you can put time into and it's all very, very detailed, but the team is so overwhelmed by this that they're not getting their time in in the first place. That's not really helpful. So the first order of priority with time tracking is compliance. So find the tool that, you know, integrates well with the other things that you're already using that, you know, allows your team to track time in a way that's useful for them, that has a nice user experience that looks pretty, like whatever is going to be valuable to your team, or perhaps that allows you to connect things like calendars, email, your project management tool, or even a resource planning tool to help pre-fill their timesheets and really help take a lot of the friction out of that time tracking. So that that's really my advice. The tools that we see most often, I will I'll concede that, is Harvest. We see a lot of EverHour. And then we see a lot of folks actually using time tracking that's integrated into their project management tool. So Teamwork, an example of a tool that has a, a good time tracking system built in. Uh, ClickUp also has a decent time tracking tool built in. There's risk with that. There's risk with having it integrated. It can be a really good thing, but it can also be a real big constraint if you have really different data structure needs on your project management team versus the rest of the team. And then those things become a conflict in terms of how time tracking data needs to be structured. But generally speaking, for most firms, having it integrated can actually be quite helpful and, and not cause those problems. So those are the tools, but ultimately the tool that you should use is the one that your team actually uses. Great. Thanks for sharing that. And um, you know, I want to go back to a point that you made about precision versus accuracy and how just getting started is the most important thing. That's one of the things that we have noticed with our clients too, is that even just tracking four numbers, four numbers and getting into the rhythm of looking at that scorecard every week with your team, looking at that, that is better than trying to have this perfect system yeah. that you never get implemented. Exactly. And it's funny enough, there's four numbers for us that, you know, really are important when it comes to profitability. And that's all you really need to pay attention to in order to get most of the visibility. Um, the first one is a financial number. And the reason I start with this one is because everyone listening to this is already doing financials. I would hope if they're not, then you probably should start because the IRS is not a very nice loan shark to owe money to. Um, but since you're already doing that, measure delivery margin on your financial statements. We audit a lot of agencies. I can tell you that less than 10% are able to see their delivery margin on their financial statements. And the reason for this is because traditional gap accounting thinks of the gross margin of a professional service as what you get paid minus pass-through. And of course, that's not your gross margin. That's your actual revenue. <laughs> so that's pretty problematic. Uh, so the, other, the next thing that you need to be able to isolate is, well, what did it cost us to actually do the thing that we promised to the client? And usually that involves taking your payroll account, which is usually just one big thing for the whole team, and splitting it at least into two. One for the delivery portion of payroll, and one for the rest of you know, overhead sales marketing, the stuff that's not related to doing client work. And the same thing is usually true about software. Usually about 4 to 6% of your agency gross income is going to be for software that isn't just for one client. It's like a tool in your team's tool belt. So you know, Figma subscription, Adobe Creative Cloud, those kinds of things. So you need to be able to isolate those expenses so that you know what your gross margin actually is on your service, right? Um, after you strip out all the pass-through, it's like, okay, well, what did it cost us to earn that revenue? So that's the first important metric is start measuring delivery margin on your financials. So just so I understand, are you saying that those those shared 
software, would you consider that part of the gross margin or not? I would consider that a delivery expense. Yeah. So if you think about the gross margin of your product, it's like, how much revenue do we need to earn after we pay external vendors? That's usually when you look at a PL for an agency, that's what the gross profit line is actually giving you. It's not gross profit. It's like, this is the, your actual revenue after you paid Facebook for the ads and you paid this white label person for the thing that you don't want to do internally. And then the question is, okay, well, how much payroll and like software tools and stuff did we have to incur in order to be able to get all the work done that allows us to earn that revenue and have it actually be ours now? So yeah, it's mostly payroll and software are going to be the primary delivery expenses. And what you're aiming for there is you want to keep at least 50% of every dollar that you are responsible for earning from a client. If you get to keep less than 50%, it's going to be really hard to be profitable because usually you're going to spend another 30 on overhead. So you kind of do the math. Anything less than 50%, you're going to have lower than 20% EBITDA. And that's not that fun. Um, we want you to be certainly higher than 20%, ideally 30 or, or even better than 30. So the goal is minimum 50% delivery margin on your profit and loss statement. So that's the first metric. So a lot of people leave here today. They might be able to do that math, go into their QuickBooks or talk to their accountant. And usually the insight is, I just measured that number and it's not as good <laughs> as you say it should be. It's not 50%. So what do I do about it? And there's only three things that influence that number. So the first one is, Average cost per hour, which is a proxy for your delivery costs, your payroll. So you think about this, it's like for every hour that my team has to spend doing client work, on average, what does that time cost me? And that's generally going to be a function of how expensive are the people that do this work. And generally, the way to lower your average cost per hour is to standardize what you do, create better documentation create better processes so that you can lower the level of judgment that's required, which generally lowers the level of experience that's required, which generally allows you to access lower cost labor to do more of the work on a client engagement. So I'll give an example of this. I used to do 100% of the work on one of, the, one of our products, the audit. So it took me like 40 hours and I'm an expensive person to replace. To replace me, is, it's like, you know, certainly a six-figure, sometimes a multi-six-figure role because we got to hire somebody with a ton of experience. We built better processes, systems, technology. Now an account manager that costs less than half of what it would cost for me can do about 80% of that work. And I'm just coming in to do the strategy, like really the high leverage, high touch stuff. So that allowed us to really dramatically lower our average cost per hour. So when you scale the business, your payroll is going to be significantly lower if you have that optimized average cost per hour. And if you use freelancers, you're going to feel it right away because you're, you're going to incur that cost directly on projects. So that's the first way to improve your delivery margin. Well, I want to just reinforce what you're saying here. This is actually, we talk about this with apprenticeship programs within, with our program in step five, but that comes as a result of being able to standardize it. But um, what you're saying is spot on because what it does is it dramatically reduces the level of complexity on 80% of it 90% of it, but you can still bring in that magic on the top 10 to 20% of it and bring in that customization. And what we have actually seen is that the quality actually increases as the cost decrease. And certainly it can lower your payroll, but what if your payroll stayed the same, but you actually tripled or quadrupled your capacity? That's the kind of thing that we see all the time. Yeah. And that's exactly the next way 
the next lever, right? So this one is focused on lowering the cost of that payroll, which would increase your margin without changing the revenue that you bring in. But exactly to your point, the other side of that is two things that increase revenue, assuming that you can't lower your cost. The first one is increasing your average billable rate. And your average billable rate is a beautiful metric. It's one of my favorite metrics because it allows you to measure the performance of anything in the business, any time period, any amount of work, whether it's a single client, a group of clients, a single project, a group of projects, a service line, a product, whatever. The math for average billable rate is how much revenue did we make minus pass-through and how many hours did it take us to complete that thing, right? So it's revenue divided by hours. And as you can see by the metric, it doesn't matter if you bill by the hour or you bill on value or you bill on whatever. It's just, what do we get paid? How much time do we spend to get it done? And if you start measuring that for all your different projects, you can very quickly start to see like, oh, we average $300 for every hour we spend on websites. But when we go and do SEO work, we only make $100 for every hour. So that, that's a pretty significant insight, right? And you can start asking questions like, well, what could we change about SEO to improve it? Or what if we only sold websites going forward? We would triple the amount of revenue that our team can earn without changing our capacity. So average billable rate is a really powerful way to increase revenue capacity. And we can, we can improve average billable rate either by increasing our pricing, which is often the first and easiest way to improve average billable rate. And most agencies have the opportunity to do that. But the other way, if we're constrained by that, is to, to your point, get more efficient, figure out how to do it in less time, create better systems, create technology, whatever it is. And this happened to our audit. It used to take 40 hours. Now it takes like 20 or 25 hours. And most of that time is done by somebody else. So we not only increase the average billable rate, but also decrease the cost per hour. So we're stretching the margin from both ends. So that's the second of the three metrics that move delivery margin. I love that. And that fits so beautifully with what we teach with the irresistible offer. It's like identifying where that profit sweet spot client is that you can deliver your biggest outcome for that is also going to be the most profitable and that, um, you can then standardize that with your team. You can standardize that down. 80% of it can be standardized as you're continuing to really um, fine tune and reduce the level of complexity needed, but you can only do that through actually specializing down. So the trick is to really dialing that in to be elevating the outcome and getting more niched in. This is something that I've watched you guys do over the past you know, five or six years that we we have been watching you guys grow Parakeeto. I mean, you guys have been modeling this. So way to go on modeling what you're actually teaching your clients to do. And it's taken a lot of discipline because believe me, we've had lawyers, accountants, landscapers, like every other kind of service business. And we totally could do what we do for them. But we've had to be like, no, we're staying here until we like absolutely have this dialed and have the scale. And yeah, so I appreciate that. Okay, so we've talked about average cost per hour as the first lever for margin. Average billable rate as a second lever for margin. The third one is the dark saber of agency metrics. It has great power, but it can cause great destruction. It's utilization. Utilization is the most misunderstood, most misused um, metric in the agency space. But essentially, it, but it's still very useful, still very important. Essentially, what it measures is how much of the capacity that you purchase as a business is being used to earn that average billable rate. And we want to measure this. This is the thing that gets counterintuitive and project managers get hives when I start talking about this. So I'll explain why we measure it this way. We measure it in the simplest possible way, which really irritates them. We look at gross capacity. 
So it's everybody on the team, including people that do no work for clients at all. Your admin assistant, the salesperson, we include them in capacity. And we don't subtract any vacation time, any holidays, any paid time off, any non-billable time. It's all the time that we bought in the employment contract from everyone on the team. That's the basis of utilization. So that's capacity. And then we measure delivery hours, which is time spent doing client work. Doesn't matter if we build them for it. Doesn't matter if it was productive. It doesn't matter if it was rework that we had to do because we screwed something up. If we had to spend the time on the client, that's a delivery hour. Working on the company website doesn't count. Is that productive? Absolutely. Is it a delivery hour? Unfortunately, it's not. It's not completing a deliverable for a client, so that's not included. That's how we measure utilization. We look at delivery hours divided by capacity. And again, this is a metric that you can look at one person. You can look at a group of people. You can look at a day, a week, a month, a quarter. You can slice and dice the business however you want. And ultimately, if you think about how much money your business will make, it's the highest percentage of time that's spent earning the highest average billable rate. You multiply your capacity by your utilization, and you multiply that by average billable rate. That's how much revenue you can handle in a given period of time. So I'll walk through a mathematical example here that I, I've repeated so many times that I know it by heart. If you had a team of about five full-time people, that's about 10,000 hours of capacity. If you utilize them at 50%, that means they spend 5,000 hours a year earning revenue, doing work for clients. If on average they make $100 per hour across all your different services, that team can do a half a million dollars in revenue, in agency gross income. If you improved the agency uh, utilization to 60%, they can now make $600,000. Nothing has changed. You've now made an extra $100,000 in profit. If you kept that 60% utilization rate and increased the average billable rate to just 125, they can now earn $750,000. Again, same team, same cost, same overhead. So let's imagine that that team of five people cost you $300,000 in payroll per year. You just took your delivery margin from 40 to 50 and then 60%. And what's cool about that is your overhead is now actually lower as a percentage of revenue. So you've increased your bottom line by more than 20%. It's, it's closer to 25 or 26%. So that's a massive improvement in profitability just from tweaking these two numbers in a quantity that doesn't really seem that significant. 10% utilization, $25 average billable rate. But when you multiply that over the scale of your team, and some of you listening might have 50 or 100 people on your team. So think about the impact that this could have. That's the power of these simple numbers that you can measure weekly, even daily in some cases, with just a couple of simple inputs. Simple information about projects and time that you have at your fingertips every day. So who should be responsible for these numbers and tracking these numbers? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, it depends. I would say the person in charge of operations should be that person. But this is why Paraketo exists, frankly, because I very rarely meet an agency that has somebody that's really qualified to do this internally, because it's not just about measuring these things. It's about maintaining this over time. It requires data operations, which is something that every other industry is very familiar with, but agencies are still learning how to do. We're behind on data operations. If you went into a software company, let's say, that has you know some funding and a small team, they would have a team of people dedicated to data operations, which means they pull data in from different areas in the business, and their whole job is to answer questions 
for executives and for teams in the business with that data, which seems like it's really easy to do, but usually they've got uh, one or two full-time engineers, a data scientist, a project manager, right? It's like tens of thousands of dollars of payroll every month, and it's a very technical job because you've got to extract the data from all the different places, put it in a data warehouse, normalize it all. Oh, we changed time tracking tools. Okay, we have to normalize that so we don't lose any insight across that time period. Oh, somebody made a mistake in their time tracking data. Okay, we need to flag that, see that it happened, correct it. Oh, you know, we have an issue with a project over here that was renamed. Okay, we need to flag that, normalize it, manage it. So there's a whole process that needs to take place to maintain this, have a clear cadence. When do we, when are timesheets due? Who reviews them? Who then comes in and generates the reports? Who meets and when? When do they need to be ready by? So whoever in the business has the skill set to be thinking about those things, that's the person that should be managing this. But in a small firm, usually that person doesn't exist. And that's why we exist, because we can provide that service fractionally for the cost of a junior project manager. So you don't have to build a data operations team, because frankly, you probably can't afford it or the tools um, until you get to you know, 100, 150 people in the business. Um, so a lot of times it falls on the founder or falls on the operations person. And they can usually do a decent job of measuring this at a high level. I don't want to make it sound like it's impossible. There are simple versions of these numbers that I just explained that almost anyone can have access to. But if you want to start getting a little bit more sophisticated and measuring really precise areas of the business, it can start to get complicated. And unfortunately, we're trying to fix this problem. There isn't a great software ecosystem for small businesses to do this on. Most of the tools that are going to allow you to do this, you need a data engineer or a data scientist to, to be able to use them. Got it. Well, it sounds like you're solving a very painful problem in this market around in the agency world. And, um, and when you say agencies, do you also work with consulting companies that look a lot like agencies? <laughs> yeah, the, the spectrum is basically um, anyone that's selling websites and then the, all the things that happens around websites. So some are more technical, it's more development shops, some are more content, some are more brand, some are more strategy focused. So that's typically the realm that we're in is consulting agencies, digital agencies, ad agencies, and then the million other variations that <laughs> we see them call themselves in that space. Where we'll start to draw the line is like legal, accounting, home services. We're not quite delving into those areas yet. Okay, good to know. All right, Marcel, um, what is the best way to connect with you? I would say LinkedIn is the easiest place to find me. Um, so feel free to connect there, send me messages, uh, ask me questions. I'm a nerd and I can't help myself, but to answer them, <laughs> you can, uh, also find us at parakeeto.com and we have a podcast. If you like listening to podcasts called the agency profit podcast, Mandy has been a guest. So, uh, yeah, definitely check that out if you enjoy, uh, this kind of content. Um, and I would also encourage everyone to check out the agency profit toolkit. If you listen to this and you thought to yourself, I should probably look into this. I should maybe start thinking about measuring some of these things. The simple version of it, we've put together all the resources that you need to start doing that in the Agency Profit Toolkit. There are templates, spreadsheets, and training videos. It's absolutely free. So I encourage you to go check that out if you are interested in learning more about how to start implementing the basics in your firm. That sounds fantastic. So you can you find that just at parakeeto.com? That's right, parakeeto.com forward slash toolkit. Do you want to spell that out? Yeah, Parakeeto is P-A-R-A-K-E-E-T-O dot com forward slash toolkit, T-O-O-L-K-I-T.
Well, great. Well, this is a real wealth of information. Definitely a good conversation for the CEOs as they're advancing and growing. And these are the kind of nuanced conversations that um, you can't have anywhere, right? So I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing so generously because this is gold. So thank you so much. And um, we really appreciate having you here, Marcel. I appreciate being here. I really thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Hands-Off CEO with Mandy Ellison. If you want to work less and make more, make sure you subscribe and get a new episode every week and help spread the word by leaving a review.